This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays, filling in for Gil Gross. On this edition of America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio, President Biden overseas on his first foreign trip. CBS News is reporting that his focus will be on projecting America's commitment to rallying the world. But will he be able to mend fences with allies who former President Trump often mocked? And how will President Biden handle Russian President Vladimir Putin, given the spate of Russia-linked ransomware attacks here in the U.S.? These are high-stakes meetings for Mr. Biden who has to show that his experience in Washington and foreign policy will mean diplomacy wins. First, Max Bergman, a senior fellow at American Progress. He served in the State Department for about six years. The meeting with Putin is going to be a really tough meeting. The Biden administration is trying to thread a needle. They don't want to have a confrontation with Russia become all-consuming. They want to focus on China, and they view Russia as as a really annoying distraction. Also, John Seifer spent 28 years in the CIA, where he served multiple tours as chief of station and deputy chief of station in high-threat environments, including Moscow. There's very little, frankly, we need from Russia. Certainly, there's some issues that we can talk about. Uh, it's just moving towards more standard diplomacy rather than, you know, pushing for headlines. And so, you know, if not much comes out of this, I think that's a win, frankly. And finally, Paul Colby, who is the director of the Intelligence Project at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. We saw this week that a bipartisan approach to a perceived external challenge um, can take place even in this political environment. And, you know, we're always in a political environment of one sort or another. You know, politics didn't start in the, in the last few years. Let's begin with Max Bergman and the G7. Max, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So we're talking about the upcoming summit. Let's start at the the beginning, really. What are, what are these summits, what are they like? So the G7 is sort of the seven richest industrial countries. The G20 was sort of expanded because, you know, there was a lot more than seven uh, that were emerging, particularly in like the the 90s and 2000s. Uh, but the G7 became the G8 for a while when Russia was added. And, you know, that Russia was sort of famously kicked out of the G8 by Obama. And what this summit in particular is really about is kind of America's strongest and closest allies and, and sort of the richest countries in the world getting together to sort of deal with global problems. 
And there's always a lot of question of, is the G7 relevant? Should it be, should we continue with it? But there's so much for the world to talk about right now. So one of the things they're going to talk about is how do we put taxes on corporations so they actually have to pay some tax and can't sort of shelter? Uh, There's obviously COVID to talk about. And then there's also just issues like, you know, what to deal with, how to deal with China, how to deal with Russia, how to deal with all the cyber attacks that are going on. And these summits provide an opportunity to both you know, for leaders to read the talking points that have been prepared and for all the kind of bureaucrats in the background to kind of hammer out deals, but also f- to just get to know each other, right? Seven people, seven leaders, not not a lot of them. There's a few others that get to be invited. They have dinner, they get to talk, they get to kind of, uh, you know, get to know each other a bit better. And the idea is that that helps when a crisis comes up, you know, in a few months from now, and Biden needs to get on the phone with a leader who maybe he's never met before, who's new that he met at the G7 and then can talk through and they already have a personal relationship established. So it's both about getting business done. It's also about establishing a real rapport uh, between uh, the biggest leaders in the world. So it's much more than just a Zoom call. It's um, actually meeting people face to face and and sitting in these rooms. But you know, as a journalist, as we see the images coming back from these summits, these big meetings with world leaders, uh, you know, you wonder: Has all the legwork been done prior to these meetings? Are they really hammering out deals in these meetings? So a lot of the legwork has been done beforehand. There's actually a term that you, you know, each government sort of anoints someone called a Sherpa to kind of coordinate and to sort of negotiate with the other G7 countries ahead of time. Uh, And the idea is that, well, if you just show up and, you you know, this is sort of what uh, unfortunately happened a lot during the Trump administration, he just sort of showed up at meetings and there wasn't a lot accomplished because in really in order to hammer out deals that are complex that can be announced, the work has to be done ahead of time. And meetings also, big summits like this serve as forcing functions for the bureaucracy, right? The boss is going and he needs a deliverable or she needs a deliverable. They want to get something done so they can have a big announcement. Uh, and that puts pressure on everyone to, to ahead of time to work together well, to make deals, to sort of move from their kind of current positions. And it creates sort of a sense of urgency. But that being said, there's also a lot to discuss. So they they create some things that they're able to uh, uh, get agreement on. And then there's other issues that they're just sort of going to talk about, right? Maybe they'll talk about China and the problem of China or Russia and what the Russians are doing. Or they weren't able to really you know, get much progress on something. And so, okay, they're just going to sort of discuss where their differences are. And then maybe with all the leaders around the table, they sort of can help provide new direction. You suddenly get Biden to focus for, you know, a couple hours or or for a whole day on a certain topic that leads to discussions and and deal-making. So, you know, I would say it's a bit of both, right? So most of the legwork has been done, but there's real opportunities for breakthroughs and, and and for announcements as well. I wonder for President Biden, is this going to be, uh, is the takeaway ultimately going to be for him, you know what, I expressed to the rest of the world that we are back. Yeah, that that is, I think, their, that is their sort of top line, you know, campaign style slogan in which they're going through uh, not just the G7, but when they meet with NATO, when uh, they have the EU, uh, summer with the EU, that America's back. Now, I think for a lot of Europeans, uh, there's a big question of like, well, what does that actually mean? You know, back for a, how long are you back for? Uh, and so there's a lot of concern that America sort of may be very, becoming more unstable. 
And then the second issue for many of them, and many Europeans, is that, well, during Obama, they felt somewhat neglected. So returning to kind of the Obama period, you know, they kind of want more and are looking for more from the United States. And so I think that's a good message. I think, you know, it's being well received by European leaders. But I think that this is the kind of last week that he can sort of make that message that America's back. It'll now be about what, do you, what is America doing? And I think that we're going to start to see a lot of announcements that are, are clearly indicate that a new approach and, and new energy in trying to really rebuild transatlantic ties, particularly between the U.S. and NATO and the U.S. and the EU. What do you think is going to be more heavy lifting for President Biden? Is it going to be the G7 or is it going to be this meeting with Vladimir Putin? So I think the meeting with Putin is uh, is is going to be uh, a really tough meeting. Um, I think the 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 Biden administration is trying to thread a needle, where what they don't want they don't want to have a confrontation with Russia become all consuming, become the thing that is you know uh, dominating Biden's attention both domestically and for and from a foreign policy perspective. Uh, they want to focus on China. They want to focus on on sort of other big issues, and they view Russia as an annoying as a really annoying distraction and one that if you sort of get into a, into kind of a, a both a diplomatic and espionage sort of uh, cyber fights with them, then it's going to become all consuming because it has to be because they're a nuclear armed power. Uh, Vladimir Putin knows that. And what all what he wants is the fight. And he wants to uh, get into squabbles with the United States. He wants to be seen as going toe to toe with the United States. That's why we saw Russia amass forces on Ukraine's border by they, you know, create a safe haven for cyber hackers that then attack our pipelines that attack our you know, meat industry. And so I think this is a, a, a summit where Biden wants to sort of lay out clear red lines and boundaries for the Russians and sort of say, if you do this or keep doing this, then there's going to be real consequences. But on the other hand, doesn't want to become all consumed by a confrontation with Vladimir Putin. And I, I think this is going to be a tough needle to thread. I think what we're going to see is a much more confrontational press conference than we saw when, when Trump met with Putin in Helsinki and was sort of uh, you know clearly deferential. Uh, I think we're going to see Biden stand up to Putin, but at the same time, not want to sort of get into kind of a, a ridiculous kind of chest thumping exercise. So we'll see. I think, you know, all eyes will be uh, on in Switzerland where, where you know, the meet, their meeting will be the end of a, a long week of summits. And, you know, I think it's going to be an intense meeting. Max Bergman, thank you. Thank you so much. When we come back, John Seifer looking ahead at Biden versus Putin. Stay with us. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Thanks for staying with us. John Seifer was in the CIA and he was stationed in a lot of high-threat environments, including Moscow, where he ran the agency's Russia operations. This coming Wednesday, Putin and Biden will meet, and there is a lot to hash out. Russia's interference in the 2016 and 2020 election and the latest cyber attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure by cyber gangs based in Russia. John Seifer, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. I want to start at the beginning of your career in the CIA, uh, because that'll help inform our listeners of uh, how you've gained your experience, especially as we talk about Vladimir Putin and his uh, past in the KGB as we head into this meeting 
with President Biden. So tell us, you were in the CIA for how many years? I was in the CIA for 28 years. 28 years, and and you were focused on Russia for some of that time. I was, and you know, uh, in the in the clandestine service, we moved from post to post every you know two to four years. But if I had sort of a specialty, it was counterintelligence and, and Russia issues. Interesting. And so I've I've been following your career. I've been following your your thoughts as you put them in print. Uh, and over the years, especially after the Russian intrusions during the 2016 election, uh, you you've talked a lot about uh, Vladimir Putin and his mindset. Uh, and you sort of examine that in his meetings with Donald Trump. So tell us what you thought about those meetings when they happened. I hate, you know, in some ways to look back, but it helps to look back to look to the future. So what did you think about former President Trump's interactions with Vladimir Putin at the time? Well, I was a little bit concerned because, you know, the the differences in in where they came from. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, calls himself a proud Czechist, and, uh, and the Cheka was the the Russian intelligence service, or it was the early Soviet intelligence service after the Bolshevik revolution. And uh, he had a whole career in the KGB, uh, you know, spying against the West and, and, and has that sort of mindset. Whereas Donald Trump, you know, had little experience in foreign policy and, and was very focused, you know, on, on business and, and sort of enriching himself. And so I, I he was the kind of per- person I thought that, that Vladimir Putin could potentially, you know, manipulate to Russia's benefit into the to the detriment of the United States. And I think we saw that over the last few years. I mean, Trump tried to befriend Putin and normalize relations with Russia. And that really that strategy ended up not achieving much for us, if anything. Yeah. And if you look back at that meeting in Helsinki, which was a draw dropper for uh, many of us who, who follow the news and who are uh, obviously aware of what happened in 2016 with the election where you know, during this meeting in Helsinki, President Trump essentially discounted the uh, the assessment of U.S. intelligence officials in favor of what Vladimir Putin was thinking. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and a lot of it had to do with, with, you know, President Trump's style. You know, he was very much not interested in expertise or, or what the U.S. intelligence community had to say or our foreign policy experts and diplomats. You know, he wanted to do things sort of by his own instinct. And I think that is a thing that, that Vladimir Putin saw and thought that he could take advantage of for his purpose. And do you think, as we head into this meeting between Putin and Biden, do you think that President Biden will rely on his instincts or his experience in politics? Well, that's interesting. So, I mean, I think anyone who gets to that level, you know, has has quite an ego and and, and believes that their instincts are, are are something they should follow, and that's that's not unusual for for politicians. However, we also know that that uh, President Biden has years and years of experience in foreign policy issues. So, you know, his meeting with Vladimir Putin is by no means the first time they've met or the first time they've engaged each other. And also, uh, President Biden has been working with uh, you know, the the State Department and our diplomats and our intelligence services for quite a long time. And so I think there'll be a mix of things. I mean, I think the re- his willingness to meet personally with Putin suggests that he he values uh, his own opinion. He values his ability to uh, to uh, 
get with 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 Putin and maybe you know make make clear what he thinks U.S. policy should be and 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 set guide guideposts. But I think he will also do it, you know, with in the full, you know, briefing and knowledge and 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 support of our institutions. And so I think there's a there's a large difference between how President Trump saw his first meeting with Putin and and how President Biden does. And how is there not bad blood between? Putin and Biden, given some of the things that uh, President Biden has said about Vladimir Putin, calling him a killer. Um, so do they get into these into these meeting rooms and is there tension there because of past statements and past actions? I think there is bad blood and I think there is tension. I think we saw in the 2016 election, you could make an argument that, that the, the Russian interference and attack on our election was in many ways in an effort to to damage Hillary Clinton because he believed that Hillary Clinton uh, you know, had, a, had a bad relationship with him and was interfering in, in Russian elections is what he believed. Of course, not true. Um, and so, yes, they do have a long history of meeting together, but it has not always been been friendly. But in a sense, that that's OK. You know, he, President Biden is representing U.S. interests here, not you know personal interests. And I think he'll be able to make a distinction between the two. What do you think will be uh, the win that President Biden can walk away from these meetings with? Is it on cyber? Uh, Given the amount of ransomware attacks we've seen where there are links to criminal cyber gangs in Russia, in Eastern Europe, do you think that President Biden can, can score some points there if he tells Putin, hey, cut it out? I think that's the phrase Obama used in in 2016 or or uh, or uh, during that time. But but what does Biden stand to gain here? Well, interestingly, I don't think there is a lot to gain. I don't think there are wins. I, I, you know, my assessment is that that Biden really wants to be able to focus elsewhere and not spend a lot of time dealing with Russia and Russian attacks. I think he wants to be able to focus on you know our large relationship over the next decades with China. And I think he wants to deal with, with the, the COVID uh, crisis and, and, and re-strengthening our relationships with our allies. And so in this sense, um, I think boring is good. I think what, we're, what he's looking to do is, is move towards a more normalized style of diplomacy engagement. Uh, these relationships aren't meant to be you know, theater and PR events. Uh, we shouldn't have necessarily high expectations you know, for what's going on here. Uh, there's very little, frankly, we need from Russia. Certainly there's some issues that we can talk about. Um, and, you know, Biden can make it very clear that, you know, what he expects from Putin and what, what issues that, you know, will the United States will push back against. But, uh, and, and it sets some expectations and guardrails. But I think in this sense, uh, it's just moving towards more standard diplomacy rather than, you know, pushing for headlines. And so I don't think we should, you know, if not much comes out of this, I think that's a win, frankly. What do you think, given your intelligence background, what do you think about Vladimir Putin and how he has led Russia uh, with these uh, seemingly increased crackdowns on, on opposition leaders and groups? Putin has been in power for over 20 years now. So uh, I think we have a clear sense of who he is and what is important to him. And so in these, in these uh, discussions, I think the onus should be on Putin if, if one of the goals is to, quote, unquote, improve relations. 
But recall, Putin has shown really no interest over the past decades in, in improving relations. There's really nothing much that he could say that could undercut the last decade of constant attacks on the West. And in the same sense, negotiating with him in some ways doesn't make a lot of sense. As I, as I read somewhere recently, uh, someone said that a firefighter and artisanist cannot meet halfway. You know, it, better relations are only possible in some sense if we sacrifice our values and our interests and maybe even our allies. And so in this sense, uh, I, I think, you know, they have to have a discussion. But I think President Biden is going in with, with sort of clear clear knowledge of, of what Putin is. You know, Putin chose to confront the West as his primary form of government. He wasn't forced to. You know, he has a foreign policy of sabotage and subversion, and that also helps him domestically. You know, he can uh, he needs an enemy, a straw man at home, so he can blame his weak performance and weak economic performance to his people. Uh, so he chose this covert global face-off instead of, you know, a win-win world. You know, to him, win-win means I beat you twice. So in this sense, the biggest danger for us and for President Biden is, um, you know, that if if we're seen to be negotiating, if we're seen to to uh, give any concessions to the Russians here, it will be seen as weakness by Putin, and he, you know he will see the West and us as weak, as weak, unfocused, and potentially corruptible. So, I think you know again we don't we shouldn't expect a lot out of this. This is for these two men to make it clear where they stand. So on uh, those few things that we can work together. Um, we can do so and hopefully at a lower level than at president to president level. But I, I don't think we should expect a lot. When we come back, more of my discussion with John Seifer. This is America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back to America Change Forever as we continue our conversation with John Seifer. I don't know if uh, a lot of our listeners are aware of this, but you know, having written a book on the 2016 uh, election interference and uh, having researched Putin and his, his worldview, uh, and I just want to get your, your thoughts on this, um, he believes that a weaker United States is obviously a stronger uh, Russia. The more that he can denigrate democracy, the better he looks. I think that's basically, you know, that's that's the message that you were uh, discussing uh, in the last couple of minutes. Um, and I don't think that a lot of people in this country realize that when we sort of dismiss his uh, intelligence community's intrusions on our elections, we, we do it uh, as Americans at our own peril because what he wants to see is a weaker United States of America. I think that's right. I think part of the problem with our politics is we look at each other through a domestic and partisan lens rather than looking at it the way uh, Vladimir Putin does. And so I think there was this automatic assumption that his attack on the election was was meant to benefit Donald Trump. And I think it was 
in 2016. If it was meant to benefit Donald Trump, it was because Putin saw Donald Trump as the chaos candidate who could actually. And so Putin's goal is to weaken the West, to weaken the United States, to look for our, our vulnerabilities and take advantage of them and to weaken our relationship with our allies. It wasn't so much that he was you know, interested in one candidate over another. You know, he's he is invested in this adversarial relationship with the West. It helps keep him in power. You know, he's had this narrative of grievance for almost 20 years now. And again, like I said, domestically, it's handy to have a straw man to to blame and deflect attention from his internal problems. Do you, in the short term, let's say five years, do you see uh, a Russia without Vladimir Putin leading it? I don't see that in, in the near term. I think we should, you know, go into these kind of meetings, understanding, you know, Russia at the end of the day, you know, it's not a large economic power, but it does have, you know, a lot of, a lot of nuclear weapons and, and military power. It can, can create problems, you know, with our allies and, and around the world. And so we do have to engage with them. And, and frankly, we, we do, you know, we have an embassy there. Uh, we have you know, diplomatic contacts. Our intelligence services are in charge. Um, but there has to be a way, you know, to, to push back against Putin, you know, uh, we can't sacrifice our values to do so, but we have to be very clear about about what we need to do. You know, Putin has made himself into a dictator. He's changed their constitution so that he can stay in power, you know, essentially until he dies. Um, but the danger with that, obviously, is this, there's no sort of uh, valve to put off pressure. And so, you know, when you're a dictator, you have to worry day by day about how you stay in power. You cannot show any weakness. You cannot, you know, if there's protests or in, in your country or there's threats in, in the countries around you, you, you see that as a serious threat and needs to be, you know, crushed. And, and we've seen that recently, you know, the, the fact that he's had to try to murder and then jail Alexander Navalny suggests that he's he's threatened by these sort of, you know, any kind of domestic opposition. Um, it, you know, it's hard to guess where things are going, but, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is going to do everything he can to keep in power because power for him allows his cronies to stay in power and, and continue to make to make money. And, and you know, di- oftentimes when uh, dictators lose power, it does not turn out well for them. For a domestic audience, President Biden will likely try to make a big deal of his message to Putin, which is stop, you know, make sure that you don't harbor these cyber criminals that are wreaking havoc on our computer systems across the U.S. with these ransomware attacks. Um, what is the likelihood in your view that these criminal gangs are operating in, in Russia uh, because the intelligence services in Russia, the Kremlin, they know they're there and they're okay with it. They are okay with those groups operating from Russia. Uh, do you think that's the case or do you think that's sort of overblown and there is really no connection between uh, Russian intelligence services and these uh, cyber criminals? No, I'm very confident that that's the case. In, in a country like that, you, you know, you do not take action that has a foreign policy uh, implication without knowing where the Kremlin stands. Uh, you know, we've seen, you know, what the Kremlin does to people who sort of act on their own. He's, they don't hesitate to jail them and even murder them in places around Europe and, and that type of thing. And so, you know, it was Gary Kasparov who recently said, hey, there's, there are no freelancers in a dictatorship. The consequences are too high. So these hackers, these ransom attacks and these assassins are all aligned with the Kremlin in, in some sense. Is, is they must they must benefit the Kremlin. If these people are taking actions that, that are seen to be hurting Russian foreign policy, the Kremlin, believe me, the Kremlin and Putin will crack down on them. So at the very least, 
Putin is okay with them. They're not going to arrest them. But but oftentimes they often use them for foreign policy purposes. And so, you know, they see people, you know, potential criminals and hackers. And as long as they, you know, do some work on behalf of the state, they're allowed to sort of maybe, you know, keep some of their ill-gotten gains as well. It'll be really interesting to see this meeting unfold between President Biden and Vladimir Putin. John Seifer, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Paul Colby is the director of the Intelligence Project at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. What do you think is the state of U.S. foreign policy at this moment as President Biden travels overseas for these meetings? Um, look, I think you're starting to see uh, foreign policy actually take place. What do I mean by that? Uh, I think you see a renewed emphasis on uh, U.S. External relations, relationships with allies, and how we're going to engage with competitors and adversaries. Um, and I think you're actually seeing a policy start to take place. I think uh, years previous to uh, Biden, you saw a series of ad hoc decisions, uh, gut decisions, uh, uh, often reactive decisions uh, that really didn't, from my mind, form a coherent policy or represent a coherent foreign policy, i.e. how the U.S. was going to engage in the world to advance U.S. interests. America first was confused with America only, um, whereas uh, I think um, a more nuanced view was that you can pursue an America first, an American interests foreign policy, uh, best by engaging with friends and adversaries. What do you think President Biden's primary focus should be as he meets the leaders of these uh, G7 nations? Uh, First and foremost, clearly to show that America's back, that America values its allies, that America needs its allies, uh, that America and the Western world, the democratic liberal world, uh, benefit uh, when they work together, when they work as one to counter um, uh, malign foreign influences or influences which seek to undermine democracies, which seek to undermine liberal economies, which seek to divide allies from each other. And how, how has some of those frayed relationships over the last four, maybe five years. How how has that impacted American foreign policy? Has it put the U.S. in a position of strength or a position of weakness? Has it made the U.S. stronger or weaker to have our alliances fray, uh, to have uh, trust in the United States decline, uh, to have faith in democracy as an institution which provides best benefits for for its people has that made America stronger or weaker? It's made America weaker uh, for sure. Um, y- you have had Russia and China rubbing their hands with glee, and I think sometimes, frankly, astonished at some of the actions that the U.S. had taken, which undermined its own self interests and made their job easier. For example, President Putin and Russia for over twenty years have sought to undermine NATO. They see NATO as a major adversary, a major um, counterweight to Russian power uh, and Russian freedom of action. Um, And so they've sought to undermine NATO as an institution to divide its members apart each other and to undermine faith in its ability to respond effectively in times of crisis. Um, As the U.S. tried to pull or thought about and made statements reflecting decreased faith in NATO, decreased emphasis in NATO and injecting doubt into U.S.-NATO commitments, uh, that did Russia's job for them. And how does that 
specifically strengthen Russia, Vladimir Putin's position across the world? You know, you, you look at Putin's trajectory over the last 20 years, um, and he's pursued a very clear and very consistent strategy. So he's when he came into power, Russia was a basket case. It's an economic basket case. Uh, it was a political basket case. It did not project power overseas, did not have respect or influence uh, either among its close uh, uh, neighbors or, or far. Um, and it was divided internally, politically. And so Putin set about basically with three tasks, you know, one to strengthen the center, i.e. to build a a center of power within Moscow using the power ministries. So that's the defense ministry, the security services, uh, the FSB and, and SVR, uh, and the uh, uh, Ministry of Interior to solidify power of the Kremlin, of those that ruled uh, in Red Square. Um, he then sought to expand the circle by establishing greater power of the oblasts, that is the states across um, the, the Russian Federation. And he did that by installing many former FSB, KGB, military um, officials into positions into those states or oblasts, um, including as governors. So at one point, he fired all of his governors. It'd be as if you know a president of the United States had the power to fire all U.S. governors and installed his own people. So that helped reestablish power across Russia. And then the third thing that he worked to do was to establish uh, uh, power over the levers of of the key sectors of the economy. So finance, arms production, transportation, oil and gas production. And what did he do there? The same thing, put in many of his own uh, 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 colleagues, former uh, KGB, former uh, military officials into positions of power and influence in those key industries so that the Russian state, with the Kremlin, had power and ability to influence them. And media, of course, is one of those as well. Um, and then all of that was used to then solidify and project Russian power outside, um, starting with its neighbors, um, uh, close neighbors. So that's why you see, have seen, for example, the intervention in Georgia and intervention in Ukraine. They saw any attempts of those states, states of the former Soviet Union, to join NATO, uh, its avowed uh, enemy, as being existentially important. And they demonstrated a willingness to go to war um, over that question. Um, and then finally, um, it was the, been the long-term goal to undermine US influence, to um, uh, undermine what they saw as a unipolar US world, a, a world where they saw the US as being hegemonic, as, as having too much power. And they've sought to, while increasing their own power, to dilute US power. One of those ways is to separate the U.S. from one of its power bases, that, I, that is, its alliances and allies. I find it fascinating The uh, what experts like you believe uh, is the threat that Russia poses at this moment in history and Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so as we discuss this issue, I'm wondering how does a President Biden push back uh, against Vladimir Putin? Um, you know, how does he approach these meetings? You know, there over the years, the U.S. has imposed sanctions, but frankly, those don't seem to work uh, in terms of changing behavior. 
Or do you think that that is the right approach, just impose more sanctions? No, I think I think sanctions are, are I agree with you, they're uh, overused. Uh, they can be uh, effective when they're used, you know, more like a, a scalpel uh, than with a hammer. Um, uh, and their overuse means you get diminishing returns. So if you apply sanction after sanction after sanction, uh, countries and individuals learn how to adapt to that. So Russia, you know, while sanctions surely have hurt its economic growth, have hurt its prosperity, um, you know, they've nonetheless, you know, not brought down Russia, not, uh, you know, fundamentally undermined it as, 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 as a country or regime. And, and from my mind, not materially affected the behaviors we've sought to affect. Um, so we still see internal political repression. We still see uh, use of, um, of, uh, of assassination uh, overseas. We still see rampant espionage and we see cyber operations conducted against the United States and its allies. So all those continue in the face and we still see you know, occupation of Ukraine, Crimea, et cetera. And all that uh, is taking place despite layer upon layer upon layer of US sanctions. It's a tool for the U.S. to use, um, but um, uh, we're using the sanctions as a hammer to hit every every nail in the in the problem set. More to come on America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset—hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time! So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to America Change Forever from CBS News Radio. Let's continue with Paul Colby, the director of the Intelligence Project at the Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. Is there a silver bullet when it comes to changing the relationship between the U.S. and Russia? No, there's no silver bullet. Look, I mean, and, that, and that's, and I think that's part of the problem is we keep reaching for the easy button. We look, we look for that that one thing that will, you know, sort of fundamentally change the dynamics. So, and we've done it on wrongly on both sides of the equation. So we've thought, well, if we just reset, we hit the reset button with Russia, we'll, you know, go back and and uh, and and work off mutual interests, and everyone will stop the behaviors that each the other finds objectionable. Well, that's Successive administrations try that. Successive administrations failed because it doesn't address fundamental differences of interest, fundamental differences in worldview. Um, and, and I think one thing that we fail to, and, and what that exhibits is that we fail to take into account what Russia's worldview is, what Russia's history is, how they view actions, how they view the world, how they view threats from their standpoint. Not to say that they're correct all the time in their in their worldview or that their uh, analysis and conclusions are are correct or even acceptable. Um, but at the same time, um, you have to understand it if you're going to affect it. Look, the Soviet Union, you know, lasted for over 70 years. We were in a Cold War for 50 years. That Cold War was marked by a quite sustained U.S. strategy of containing the Soviet Union, of opposing it where it posed the most acute uh, threat to U.S. interests, to engage in shadow conflict, uh, both in terms of uh, intelligence operations and espionage, uh, uh, but also to engage in, in military conflict via proxies. Uh, when necessary, and to maintain a very clear policy of deterrence at a strategic level, i.e. nuclear deterrence, all the while understanding that you have to be able to talk to your adversary. That was done over successive administrations, Republican, Democratic, 
a policy that was sustained for 50 years, which in the end enabled the Soviet Union to collapse, not because of outside pressure, but because of its internal weakness and contradictions. And I think we need to take the same time of same type of time frame, same time of sustained policy and scope of what is it that we stand for, what is it that we want to do, what is it that we'll oppose, and and, uh, and sustain that rather than taking kind of a quarterly uh, uh, assessment of tit for tat actions as as our bottom line. Well, and it's hard to do that really in this political environment that we're living in now. The the partisan politics, <clears throat> excuse me, different. Different approaches to Russia and Vladimir Putin, in part uh, because of the former administration's approach. Um, so it, it, I suspect that it's going to be hard to, to keep you know, some sort of long-term policy in place in this environment. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that's true. I won't just talk about you know, you know, Trump administration, but Bush administration, Clinton administration, uh, Obama administration, all, all had their major failings with, with regards to Russia. But we saw this week that a bipartisan approach to a perceived external challenge um, can take place even in this political environment. And you know, we're always in a political environment of one sort or another. You know, politics did start in, in the last few years, uh, and you've had deep divisions between Democrats and Republicans over, over the decades on, on foreign policy issues. My thanks to Paul Colby, who was referring to legislation that passed this week that would spend a quarter of a trillion dollars over five years to bolster scientific research and development to ramp up competitiveness against China. Surprise, surprise, it was bipartisan. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.